Men det var var förallt av höger. Amen. Vad det? Det var all om all I suspect most of us, if we're honest, have probably fallen asleep a time or two. In fact, Pastor Brian was just preaching 
about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane here not too long ago and talking about the really deep sleep that came over the disciples. So if I see some of you out there like this, I'll understand. Yeah, I was sitting in the pew and, and kind of say, thinking to myself, Bri, come on, move along. This is, <laughs> this is putting me out here. <laughs> Most of us also, if we're honest, would probably say that church puts us to sleep because maybe it's a little bit boring. It's boring. We don't believe that anything really meaningful or impactful happens at church. Church is just a place where we go to learn lots of information so that we can live life better or be a little bit happier or whatever it might be. But if we really want to change the world, politics is where it's at. Matt asked me to come and talk to you tonight a little bit about the church and politics because it's been a subject that has interested me for a long time. We usually think that the church is apolitical, that is not political. And as a consequence, it's largely marginalized when it comes to being culturally relevant or culturally significant. Unfortunately, most churches agree with such a statement. You see, the Jesus of most churches is just a Jesus who is nice and wants us to be nice too. And that's about as far as the Jesus of a lot of churches goes. Worse, most churches believe that to be significant, we must engage in politics like the rest of the world. In other words, we need to play on their field. We need to play the game that they're playing. We must become a candidate or at least a political pundit of some sort. I'm here to tell you tonight, it's not true. It's not true. You see, the church and its best political effort is itself. The best politics that the church can be involved in is itself, is being church. You guys might not know it, but right here tonight, what you're doing is something extremely political. It flies in the face of what goes on in the world out there because you're coming here to worship. You're coming here to serve the Lord God of the universe. There's nothing more political than that. Now, chances are tonight I'm going to ask more questions than I answer. Uh, I should apologize for that in advance. I should probably apologize for about, uh, I'd say, 76, 77 percent of what I'm going to say. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, lots of questions is a good thing. It causes us to start thinking, start wondering, start pondering, and that's really my objective. I'm not going to give you something here tonight to walk away from saying, okay, I know everything there is to know about this subject. No, I'm just going to get us started thinking, and questions are a wonderful way to do that. I should tell you why I wear the tie. It's really not because I think I look cool in a tie, um, It's uh, <laughs> although I... I recognize that's true but uh, it's <laughs> no it's it's not because I feel like I need to dress up to speak at a group like this no the reason I wear a tie is purely for me it just simply reminds me how important what I'm talking about really is when I talk about scripture and the Lord Jesus so I wear it for me so if it bothers you just ignore it that's okay I want to start off by talking a little bit about the politics of Jesus. The politics of Jesus. What kind of political acts did he engage in? And you see on your hand out there, the first is that Jesus exercised patience, not efficiency or comfort, patience. In John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this reason I came to this hour. Father, 
glorify your name. Notice, first of all, where it is that Jesus is saying this. He's saying it the last week of his life. Indeed, he has only hours yet to live. And his soul is troubled. But Jesus doesn't run away from his death, the crucifixion, the cross that awaits him. He doesn't try to pull some sort of a shell game to get out of it. And what I mean by patience here is, who is Jesus again? Remember when he was born, the angels said, this is the man. This is the guy who is going to save all of Israel. In other words, this is Emmanuel, God in human flesh. The king of the universe is here with us when Jesus is born. And here's the king of the universe facing death. People should bow down to him. People should worship him. And yet Jesus is patient. That day will come. We know that because Paul says over in Philippians 2 that God has given a name to Jesus that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there will come a day when Jesus' reign, His kingdom, His power will be displayed for all to see and everyone will bow in worship but it's not yet the politics of Jesus when he was on the earth was a politics of patience not trying to establish his kingdom not trying to play the angles to make it happen as quickly as possible and not trying to make it easy on himself instead he was patient he waited. In John 18, 36, Jesus is before Pilate and he's, he's being tried just before he's about to be killed and he knows what's coming. Pilate asks him, are you a king then? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting so that I would not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom not of this world. Not yet. Patience. The politics of Jesus was also a politics of sacrifice. Some of you probably know Mark 10.45. Can anybody quote it for me? That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. To be served, but to serve. His life was a life of sacrifice. And it actually began as a life of sacrifice even before he was born. In Philippians 2.6, just after Paul has talked about the importance of serving others and of considering others as more important than ourselves, in 2.5 he says, "...have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus." who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken hold of. Jesus was God, is God. And he existed in glory with God the Father. But, Paul continues, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a man, even the form of a bondservant. He submitted himself to death, even death on the cross. Jesus sacrificed. He gave rather than taking. Sacrifice, not control, was the politics of Jesus. Humility, not, manip not manipulation, not power. Humility. Jesus gave of himself. That doesn't sound very much like politics, does it? But it's interesting 
how one man's death changed everything. You see, the politics that we're engaging in is not just a politics of the right now, of this day and this age. It's the politics of eternity that Jesus was engaging in. And when we worship, when we follow him, our politics is a politics of a greater, a higher order than what we know here. The politics of Jesus was glory for the Father, not power for himself. In John chapter 6, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Did you catch that? I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who, belie- who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Son came not to do his own will, not to exercise his own control, not to seek his own comfort, power, position. You fill in the blank. Jesus came to honor the Father, to glorify the Father by doing the Father's will. In Matthew 26, I mentioned earlier, the Garden of Gethsemane is recounted for us. It's where Jesus went to pray at the Mount of Olives just before he's arrested and eventually, in, within hours, crucified. And while Jesus is there praying, the disciples fall asleep. I'm certain I would have been among the disciples who were sleeping. I wish I could say I would have been there with Jesus, praying right with him. But that's a lot of work. And we get tired easily. And after all, we've been to the Garden of Gethsemane before, Jesus. We've seen all this stuff before. It's late in the night, Jesus. Man, can't we just sleep a little bit? But what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane is a political drama that we can't miss, that we need to pay close attention to. Because Jesus is praying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself for the Father's plan, the Father's will. And in so doing, what he does is bring glory to the Father. Bring honor to the Father. He fulfills the Father's plan that He would go to the cross and His death would pay the price for our sins. That is cosmic politics. Cosmic politics. We as church, of course, follow the Lord Jesus. And we shouldn't really expect that our politics would be necessarily all that different. Our politics is really pretty similar because we are Christians, is the name used of them first at Athens. 
Christians, little Christs. We follow after Jesus. So we want our lives to look like Jesus, and we should want our activity within the church to look like Jesus. As a consequence, the politics of the church, and remember what I said earlier? The best politics that the church can engage in is being the church, being itself. That is a very political thing. That's not a retreat away from engaging the world. That's not trying to avoid cultural influence or cultural contact. Indeed, it is a loud and boisterous statement of who the God of the universe really is. Of who the Lord of the universe really is. And the best that we can do as church is say to the world, here's the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. Now what are you going to do about it? The politics of the church involves transformation into Christ-likeness, not transformation of culture. Transformation into Christ-likeness, not transformation of culture. Transformation of culture may happen. I certainly wouldn't deny that. However, that's not our goal. That's not our objective. Our objective is Jesus Christ himself. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12, this might be a good one for us to look at as well. If you uh, can find the book of Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at this passage together. This is one that, if you haven't yet, it might be good to stick on your wall, take with you in your car, maybe even memorize. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 15, or excuse me, in verse 12, uh, 12 to 15. Philippians 2, 12, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Transformation into Christ likeness. That's our goal. That's our objective. Becoming like Christ. And indeed, when we do that, it's very political. It's really going to make a statement. The life and death of one man changed the world, changed eternity. Imagine what, I don't know how many there are here, 150? 200 tonight? Imagine if all of you were changed into little Christ. What an impact that would make. Not an impact on culture, not an impact to change the legislature or something like that, but rather an impact for the glory of God. An impact for God's kingdom. That's politics. The politics of the church is about conversion, not reform. Matthew 5.16. Anybody remember Matthew 5.16? Let your light... Yes, exactly. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory, give honor to your Father who is in heaven. Notice that the goal in Matthew 5 is worship and praise. That's the goal of the church's politic. Worship and praise of the name of God. Now, How does that happen? Well, we can sing songs. We can study Scripture. These are wonderful things. But I have a, a little cliche that I want to twist for you some that may help us Think about glory 
a little differently. You guys have heard the old adage that the greatest form of flattery is imitation. Yes, not Anthony Skinner. Imitation. Uh, <laughs> the greatest form of flattery is imitation. Well, I want to twist that a little bit to help us understand exactly what's being said here in Matthew chapter 5. The greatest form of glory is imitation. Because you see, when we live like Jesus, when our lives are transformed, conformed to the image of God's Son, God receives glory. Because people see our good works. People see our life. And they give glory, give honor to our Father who's in heaven. The greatest form of glory is imitation. Imitation of the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are helpful in this regard. Anybody know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Yes, thank you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. By grace we have been saved. Notice I mentioned in your outline there, we are saved by grace. However, we are saved for glory. Let's start at the very beginning. By grace you have been saved through faith. What is this, this word that we Christians tend to use? Grace. What does that mean? Well, Paul explains it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works lest anyone should boast. Not by works. It seems as though grace and works are set in juxtaposition. They are set in opposition to one another. You cannot, in other words, work for your salvation. It is the gift of God. Grace is the expression of God's loving character. He gives us Himself as His greatest gift. And that happens, of course, at the cross. Because at the cross, the possibility of relationship is made real. That's what we sang about tonight. At the cross, sin is paid for with the blood of Christ. At the cross, we can receive forgiveness of sin. Sins that we have committed. Sins that we may commit in the future. All sins that we ever even thought can be forgiven at the cross. And we can be made right with God. Our relationship with God can be one of reconciliation. Your sins, Isaiah 59 says, your sins have caused a division between you and your God. A separation. And at, that, at the cross, the blood of Christ bridges that separation, causes reconciliation between us and God. Of course, there's an if involved. The if is, have you ever done anything about that? The if is by faith. Do you have faith? Has God given you faith? Do you exercise? Do you grow in your faith. We are saved by grace. Nothing we could do. We are also saved for glory. Ephesians 2.10, immediately following, says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace for good works. Ultimately, for glory. Because remember, those good works that we do are an imitation of Christ, bringing honor, glory to our Father who is in heaven. 
the best thing that the church can do for the world is to be the church. So that the world will know that it needs a Savior. So that the world will know that it's in need of redemption. That it has separation from God. And it needs to be made right. The best thing that the church can do for the world is to be the church. The most political thing that we can do is to live the Lordship of Jesus. Before a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's why we work out our salvation. To attempt to transform culture into something like the church, a more moral culture, a church light, if you will. (laughs) To, To attempt to transform culture into church light is to inoculate it with just enough Christianity to make it immune to the real thing. I'll say that again. To attempt to transform culture into church light is to inoculate it with just enough Christianity to make it immune to the real thing. The politics of the church is a redeemed community that glories in witness, not in safety or comfort. Think about how we often think about these things. We just had a missions conference here at Grace here a week or two ago. And we think that it's wonderful to see missionaries. And it's great for them to be home for a while and not to have to be out on the field. Notice how I described it. Did you catch the word that I used there? Home? Where, where is our, our home? Missionaries, interestingly, often will correct us. Actually, my home's not here. My home is there. My home is fulfilling the will of God. Did you realize that missionaries never really come home? In fact, you guys those of you who know the Lord Jesus, you are missionaries. You are on a mission field. You're not at home any longer. Your home is in heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. Now, I'm not saying that we have to live in a tent or uh, uh, wander around on the streets of Bozeman and we can't have a home a house to live in or something like that. No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that our perspective needs to be that we are on mission at all times. That's our life as Christians. And that's a very political statement. If someone were to die, let's say... Uh, Pastor Brian, Lord forgive me, Uh, (laughs) Brian's not here right now so I can get away with this. Uh, Suppose Pastor Brian were killed on the streets of Bozeman in a car accident, we would say, oh, that's a tragedy. Such a waste. But if Pastor Brian were to go to speak to a group, we'll say, Um, in a couple of months I'm going to be in Russia, we'll say in Russia, uh, and he was going there to teach, and he was killed by a band of marauders who broke into the church and shot everybody who was there, we would say, oh, he gave his life fulfilling the will of God. He's a martyr. But is there really any difference? You see, Brian isn't at home Here, he's on mission. And whether we get killed on the street in a car accident or killed on a foreign field with bullets, the difference is not where we're at. 
We're doing the same thing both places. We're on mission. That's politics. The politics of the church. Paul doesn't see safety or comfort as his end goal or his desire. In Philippians 3.10, let's see, that's, Paul has this tendency to write, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, he writes in really long sentences. It's really hard to start in the middle of a sentence. (laughs) I'll start back in verse 8. More than that, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is, is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. The fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul is not seeking safety and comfort here. Jesus did not seek safety and comfort. Now, I'm not saying that we're masochists. I'm just saying that our goal is not to be safe or to be comfortable. Our goal is to know Christ and to make Him known. Through how we live, through who we are, we are called to be a body, the church, who calls out to the world to come and join us. And I'm afraid that all too often we don't really have a cause that makes the world think we're worth following, think we're worth listening to. In John 15, you'll recall that Jesus promised his followers, know this, first of all, that if they hate you, they hated me before they hated you. In other words, as followers of Jesus, if we're hated, Keep in mind that Jesus was hated first. If they persecute you, know this, that they persecuted Jesus first. Have you ever thought or wondered, though, why is it that, at least here in the West, maybe here in America, we're not really all that hated? We're tolerated, you know, sometimes we're perhaps uh, given a few insults, but we're not really hated. Maybe we're not hated because we're really not dangerous enough. We really don't believe this stuff enough to make it look like it's worth following or to make it look like it's worth hating. Ponder this for a bit. We are given the Spirit of Jesus so that we might live as a biological unit, that is, as a body, and in so doing, reflect more clearly His life to the world. Our mission then is twofold, to be church and to call the world to come and join us as followers of the Lord of the universe. Nothing could be more important than that, not even our own survival. You see, the most insidious thing about evolution is not its biological claims, but its ethical claims. We often get wrapped up in its biological claims. I'm really not all that concerned about that. I'm more concerned about its ethical claims. You see, within evolution, we are taught that survival is ultimate. And I think we've come to believe that. Survival is ultimate. But the fact of the matter is, in Scripture, (laughs) Jesus is ultimate. Jesus. I want to read you a quote from uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs magazine. This is taken from a 1993 uh, edition of the magazine. Uh, This is a young lady who's being interviewed. 
She had been tortured and beaten in a prison in, I believe it was in Vietnam, for years. And they asked her the question, uh, you know, what, what about being relieved from your persecution, your torture? Wouldn't you rather escape? Or wouldn't you rather that your church remain hidden or that you not be discovered? And her answer is this, I surely would not like our work to be discovered. As for my person, it is something else. Torturers are men who would never go to church, read a holy book, or frequent the homes of believers. Their only chance to be saved is to have a Christian prisoner before them, to speak to them about Christ with love, even while being beaten. Throughout church history, many saints have brought their tormentors to heaven. Convicting. That's politics. That's the lordship of Jesus on full display. And it's beautiful. It's tremendous. Why spend so much time discussing how Jesus responded to power and how the church should regard its power? Because the church, I believe, is often being coerced into believing its power lies in this world or in this culture or in its political voice. I downloaded a, a quote here just a couple of days ago uh, from a person. See if you can guess who this might be. Uh, the quote goes like this. If Christians could band together, they'd be the country's most potent lobby. Regulations that limit the political activity of pastors and others who lead tax-exempt organizations shut Christianity down. He adds that Christians are really being silenced, and we can't let that happen. Who do you suppose said that? If you're thinking Donald Trump, you're right. <laughs> Just two days ago he said that. Three days ago, maybe. But notice, this is not a statement of history. It's an invitation. If you want to be more powerful, you need to use your voice in politics. You need to join together and become the country's most potent lobby. Really? Is that all we are? Just a lobby group? I'm going to come at this from a slightly different tact here for a moment. <clears throat> a few more questions. What does it look like when someone has an idol that they worship? Let me make it even a little more personal for us. If I followed you around for one week, I'm not going to do that, that would be stalking. Uh, <laughs> if I followed you around for one week, who would I say your God is? If I just watched your life for a week, who would I say your God is? How would we know? What would, what would it look like? If someone's idol is a stone, you see, it's probably on a shelf in the center of the wall. If it's a a wooden idol, it's probably displayed prominently in a front room or on a doorpost somewhere. But what if our idol is an idea? An idea, a thought, a perspective, an attitude. For instance, the idol of self. It's a relatively easy one to see. We even have a a word to describe this. Let me give you the definition, see if you can guess the word. Extreme selfishness with a grandiose view of one's own talents and a craving for admiration as characterizing a personality type. Symptoms include an excessive need for admiration, 
disregard for others' feelings, an inability to handle any criticism, and a sense of entitlement. Can you guess the word? Narcissism. Narcissism. The idol of self. We have a video for a moment that I'm going to let you watch because it's a wonderful illustration of how to identify if you're narcissistic. Six ways. When we think of a narcissist, we might think of star Kanye West or GOP candidate Donald Trump. But what is a narcissist? And are you one? The word narcissist comes from the Greek myth about Narcissus who actually fell in love with his own reflection in a pond and stared at it for so long that he died. Like did he not eat? The immense concern with one's appearance is a huge part of narcissism, but with that in mind could you actually spot a narcissist just by looking at them? Research on snap judgments or zero acquaintance judgments does show that you could actually tell if someone was a narcissist to some degree. In one study, narcissists were found to wear flashy, provocative, revealing clothing and keeping a well-groomed appearance. Narcissists are often oblivious to the thoughts and feelings of others and lack empathy. Even when you tell them how their attitude makes you feel, their responses will most likely be about themselves. Hey Greg, um, the thing you said yesterday about my haircut kind of upset me. You saying that to me upsets me. Have you ever thought about how that might make me feel? And maybe next time just stop getting ugly haircuts. Narcissists are known for their huge egos and grandiose sense of self-importance. They often think that they are special and can only truly be perceived by other people of high status. Narcissists require excessive admiration and regularly fish for compliments. Do you have a Birkin bag? Of course. Oh, okay, good. We can talk then. A narcissist's inflated sense of self is actually quite easy to pop because they are very sensitive. They are highly reactive to criticism. Often, if a narcissist is on the verge of humiliation, they will transfer their energy into anger. People say I look like Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's not true though, right? Um, no, you're way cuter. Oh, good. Okay, people also say I look like President Hilton though, but like, that's not true either, right? Um, yeah, I can see that. What? That is rude. He's ugly. Oh my god. Ugh. I mean like, ugh. Spotting a narcissist online might be a little bit tricky, but there does seem to be some trends. Narcissists are known to post a lot more on social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, but also you don't necessarily have to be a narcissist to post a lot, right? Because I do it all the time. The difference lies in the motives for posting. Narcissists agree with statements like, it's important that my followers admire me, or it's important that my profile makes my followers want to be my friend. In another study, researchers found that narcissistic adolescents rated their own social media profiles as more fashionable, cool, or glamorous compared to their less narcissistic peers. Gonna upload this one to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and everybody's gonna admire me. Narcissists love attention. In one study examining undergraduate narcissists, they found a similar behavior. They're often unagreeable, very extroverted, they use sexual language, and are likely to skip class. Hey, are you coming to class? <laughs> nope. Kidding me, I could teach this astrophysics class. Neil deGrasse Tyson's like my dad. Okay. Of course, loving yourself is important and having confidence in your abilities is not a bad thing. The difference being that narcissists see their power and brilliance and beauty as unlimited, which is not necessarily a bad thing either, but sometimes it can lead to hurting other people and that's where issues come in. So, are you a narcissist? You can actually take the narcissistic personality test in which it asks you 40 questions and it gives you a scale of how narcissistic you are. The link is in the description. Let us know in the comments below if there's any other topics you want us to cover on ASAP Thought. Thanks for watching this video and follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And subscribe. We'll see you soon. Peace. <laughs> Speaking of narcissists, yes. Follow me on uh, Snapchat, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> it all fit together pretty well. Why is narcissism so easy to spot? Because there's a little bit of it in all of us. <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you own uh, a selfie stick? Yeah. <laughs> or how many selfies you take a day? Uh, or every hour? Uh <laughs> yeah. And it was good for us to watch a little bit about narcissism because we should probably talk about that one day too. But leaving that aside, 
What if our idol is an idea or just something that we embrace about ourselves? Let me twist that a little bit. What if our idol was another idea, say, freedom? Now, this may get a little dicey because chances are I'm probably going to slander some of your gods. Because we often do make a god out of freedom. What would it look like to idolize our own autonomy? Uh, or autonomy is just simply a word that means being a law unto yourself. Having self-control, self-determination. Being in charge, being in power. Maybe a better way to ask the question is to ask, what would happen to your commitment to Jesus if your freedoms were to disappear? Kind of coming at it from the other end of the spectrum. If your freedoms were gone, would you still worship? Would you still be committed to the Lordship of Jesus? Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that freedom is evil. Freedom is a wonderful opportunity to believe and worship and witness to the reality of Jesus Christ and His loving Lordship over our lives. But what would happen to the church today if freedom was changed or lost? Would you want to follow Jesus if it wasn't so easy? If it wasn't so comfortable. Interestingly, the Bible does give us a definition of freedom, but it's not the same definition that we're perhaps used to. You see, the definition we have for freedom is one of self-autonomy, one of self-control or self-determination. And Jesus talks a little bit about freedom in John 8, 31 and 32. Just listen while I read. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's not freedom to do anything you want, freedom to be anything you want to be. That's freedom to obey. You see, that is true freedom. You ever seen those bumper stickers that say, created for worship? There's a lot of truth there. It's a wonderful bumper sticker. You see, God designed us, made us in such a way that the best we can be, the best we can do, is worship. The best thing we can be is His own child. The best that we can do is His will. That's true freedom. Living according to our created intent. Living the way God designed us. That's freedom. The real question that we're talking about here tonight, of course, is a question of lordship. We live in a day of competing lords. Competing masters. They are all vying for your allegiance. And I use that word intentionally. To whom will you give your allegiance? To whom will you give your life? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is explaining the cost of discipleship. It's not a cost or a prerequisite, but it is the cost of following. In other words, we are still saved by grace, but we are saved for glory. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, Jesus was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. And the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus makes it clear. Take up your cross daily. This is finding your life. Now this, this imagery that he uses here uh, is perhaps a bit foreign to us. We're used to thinking of crosses as something that dangle from our ears or something that hang around our necks. The cross was a symbol of death. Bri loves to use this, this analogy. What would it be like if we wore a gas chamber or an electric chair around our necks? It would be ghastly. I'm not saying that you should stop wearing crosses as jewelry. Not at all. But recognize that what Jesus is talking about here is not about a piece of jewelry. He's talking about your life. Take up your cross daily. Be willing to give your life to Jesus daily. It might be a good thing every day when you get up to look in the mirror and say two things. First thing, when you look in the mirror, tell yourself, you're an idiot. 99.9% of the time, you're going to be right. Second thing you should tell yourself, today, I'm going to live the Lordship of Jesus. This day is the day that the Lord has given us. And I'm going to live for Christ today. Take up your cross daily. It may not mean that you're going to die today. But then again, who knows? Maybe you will. How are you going to make your death count? You guys are pretty young. You're not thinking about these things yet. I'm starting to get a little bit of gray hair. I think about these things a little bit more. How are you going to make your death count? Death isn't something that just happens at the end of life. It matters. It's meaningful. And the way to make your death count is to live for Christ now. Live for Christ every day. And your death will be legendary. A saint welcomed home. That's our true home. <clears throat> is your Jesus worth dying for? Is your Jesus worth dying for? If he is, then he is probably worth living for also. If he's worth dying for, he's worth living for. Living for Jesus is the most powerful, the most real, the most political thing that you can do. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, it is difficult for us to imagine in lives of hope, in lives of anticipation, in lives of comfort, that there could ever be a real enemy that there could ever be a real possibility that our lives would be at stake for something. And yet, Lord, that is exactly the world in which we live. Not this world around us that is concerned about the price of gas or how much food costs or where things are manufactured or safety behind certain walls. Rather, Lord, the world we live in is a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that is far greater, far higher than this world can even imagine. And so, Lord, we come before you tonight humbly asking that you would open our eyes. Cause us to see the meaning 
of our life. Cause us to see the end or destiny for which we were created. So that we might live lives that matter. So that we might give our lives to something that is not going to pass or fade or burn or disappear. But rather give our lives to something that is eternal. A value far greater than any gold or silver give our lives to the Lord Jesus and to live for him. This is our politics. This is our goal. This 